Well, welcome once again to the only place in town that's espousing a faith in humanity. <laughs> Given the amount of incompetence, corruption, criminality, exploitation, terrorism, and cruelty and neglect, I'd like to modify that statement somewhat. Our faith, of course, is not in humanity as it is, but as it can be, the capacity for good in the human spirit, and our ability to elicit it. Now, this first Sunday of each month this year, we've been examining a theme of spiritual prosperity. And here, when we use the spirit, word spiritual, we don't mean anything ghost-like or supernatural. We go to the real definition of the word, which is the animating vitality in a being. And prosperity means to flourish, the state of full bloom. And that's what we will be examining. More practically, it's a way of thinking about your life as proceeding along a line of time, event to event to event. But the quality of our lives is not determined by what happens to us in each of these events. It's determined by our spirit, our response, our reaction to that moment of time. And our reaction can be extraordinarily creative, filled with goodwill, and that, when we bring that to each moment, it determines the kind of group we cultivate, the kind of relationships, the quality of who we become, and the quality of our lives. So what we're looking at is how are different ways that we can respond to claim our own capacities and those of the people around us. Now, of course, what complicates life in this whole theory is uh, we really don't know how to do that. Uh, we, at every moment of time, have to decide, do I go along or am I going to react in some kind of different way, different direction? And, of course, we are born ignorant. We don't know anything about it. We have no operator's manual. And whether you're going to claim your natural capacities that are there in your human spirit, whether you're going to get to cultivating the people around you, what's really best and wonderful in them, depends on the amount of wisdom that you can let in from your community, that you can learn by your own trial and error. Now, most human beings on the planet never learn to read or write. And some of us, of course, never learn to love. We never learn to see the future all capacities that are natural if we claim them. Sometimes we learn how to lead our lives, and sometimes we just accept what we get. Spiritual prosperity depends on knowing how to respond to specific situations. Now, we spend our lives in the context of people, our families, workplace, community, the public events, our workplaces, who all of these end up shaping us as we shape it. So today's question, how do we become a creative agent actually eliciting the best from the people around us and ourselves? Now, of course, there are many paths to prosperity. Um, we can uh, climb the pyramid of success, and then we get to enjoy a lot of privilege and prestige and power and, and prosperity. Uh, if we get near the top. Uh, we can also uh, choose recreation and consumption. We can have a good house, good food, good music, 
good friends, good beaches, sense of prosperity there. Uh, the other sense of prosperity, the spiritual kind, is often related to a supreme being, having a faith in that supreme being, following rituals. That's going to bring great rewards to your life. Well, here at Ethical Culture, we have a view of reality that says reality is organic. Whether you look at outer space or inner space and micro space, or living organisms, or human society, they operate by principles of interaction, where essential elements elicit the unique best of each other and create some kind of whole that's bigger than the sum of its parts. That synergy creates our physical universe and, theoretically, ethical culture, creates our spiritual, emotional, psychological universe. So the question becomes, if that's true, what are those principles that create spiritual prosperity, the ideal interaction among us? Um, The man who founded Ethical Culture in 1876, Felix Adler, was really clear that the purpose of ethical membership was ethical leadership. Quote from him, The aim of an ethical society is not to adjust people to their social conditions, but to strengthen each member's ability to have a beneficent influence on their social environment. Ethical leadership, being an ethical agent, requires some skill, a lot of skill. But on the other hand, look at what we've mastered. We've mastered literacy, driving a car, most of us operating a computer, running our VCRs, paying our taxes. Most of us have some profession where we've mastered a whole bunch of skills. So why not master some skills for cultivating your own spiritual prosperity, for transforming the groups that you're in to really wonderful places by dealing with anything that's not wonderful and transforming it. Why not learn those skills? It's really not how much you get in life or how many toys you accumulate, of course. It's how much you're able to enjoy. And so why not cultivate that in us? So to become one of these ethical agents in your relationships... It requires, I think, two things, and those are the two things I'll focus on today. First of all, it's knowing what those values are. And the second thing is knowing how to cultivate those values in the community you're in. Well, step one, knowing what you value. Now, since the separation of church and state, we've gone through uh, quite a change. We live in a rather rare culture, we meaning you and not me, um, we've really been through some centuries, where, uh, decades, where we've been trying to escape the tyranny of mores, things that forbid dancing, movies, and uh, billiards, but somehow justify slavery, bigotry, and exploitation. And we needed to break out of those ways of thinking and those kinds of institutions. And so we, have, most of us, have grown up in an era uh, where uh, was rather permissive. I mean, it's a time when all values were subjective and relative, so everybody's right for their own perspective. Um, which is, I think is true, except your perspective may be wrong. That some perspectives and some values get you to one kind of end and some to another kind of end. And to begin to decide which end do I really want, and therefore what do I value? is a question that comes right back to us. It's one thing to be clear of the values you didn't believe in. It's a whole other thing to decide, but what values do I believe in? What am I living here? 
This was a problem uh, that was most wonderfully uh, uh, attacked right after World War II. The UN set up two commissions. One was a group of philosophers and one was a group of politicians. And their job was to come up with what became the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which has now been approved by 80% of the countries in the world. Well, the 18 nations actually participated in it. Four of them, United States, China, Lebanon, and France, were the leaders of it. it included people like Eleanor Roosevelt and Gandhi and um, Jacques Martin. Um, when they finally reached an agreement, there was considerable shock that all these different cultures could come to agreement. Uh, Jacques Martin, a Catholic philosopher, said, yeah, we agree about the values, but on the condition that no one asked why. The question that they placed before themselves was, what behaviors are conducive to human flourishing? And with that question, they discovered some commonality. All the religions have in common uh, this basic perspective, and that is they say there are possibilities that are better than we have yet experienced. And then each religion has its own path up the mountain of truth for how to get there. And each one is very certain that their path is the right one, and that one is a false path. And of course, that's really true. From where they came on their side of the mountain, it's the right path. And when they look ahead, what they see up there is their prophet. And he's standing at the top, and he can see, there, see the top, so I know this is the right path, and that one's wrong. And right up there, they're all there. Moses is up there, and Buddha, and Lao Tzu, and Confucius, and Jesus, and Mohammed. And what do they have in common on the mountaintop? What can they all see? Well, if they look north, they all see a respect for human dignity, respect for the worth of a human life, that people ought not to be killed or damaged. They shouldn't be used as a tool because each one is precious and unique and essential with capacities that need to be cultivated. If they look south, they see veracity, all of them. They seek to understand truth, what is so, to understand what is so as it is, and to never misrepresent reality as you see it. Never misrepresent it. You put out, you may be wrong, but you're putting out what you see from where you stand right now, and you're not misrepresenting it. Veracity is in the South. In the East is justice. Doing to others as you ideally would have them do unto you. That golden rule is in every religious tradition. And finally, West, love. The human spirit is a one and a many. We are not a species that survives if there was only one of us. We are a one and a many, and love is embracing the other as oneself. Those are the four things. Charles Larmore, who's a philosopher from the University of Chicago, um, let me read a sentence from him. Modern thought has properly left behind the religious conception that morality is of God's making, but we cannot rest content with the conclusion that is therefore of our own making. We have to learn to see the difference between right and wrong as part of the way things are. David Muzzy, American historian and ethical society leader, the first postulate of ethical culture is the existence of a moral law as permeating as the physical laws of nature. Samuel Johnson, 18th century scholar, even the devils themselves must act ethically because they could not operate hell otherwise. 
Ethical values I see as very much like West Virginia speed signs. Uh, you're on a curvy mountain road and it says 35, and the, it's enforced 100% of the time because gravity is always watching. <laughs> I spent half my time so far basically on faith that values are real. There are all kinds of values. Of course, here we're talking about ethical values that they're real, they impact the people around us, and they create who we are. Just as economic prosperity comes from a better understanding of physical reality, that is, that when we discover that rocks are moving particles, we stop living in rock houses and we move into skyscrapers with glass and steel. Similarly, mastering the principles of spiritual prosperity is what's going to determine the quality and the nature of our life. So, I have a question for you. This is a question that you decide inside yourself, however you decide. No one knows but you, but it only counts for you anyway. And that is, do you actually have faith that there are certain ethical values, beside the content of what's happening at any meeting that you're in, that there's some underlying ethical values, and what's happening on that level is really determining the quality of your relationship and who each of you are? Do you believe that there are certain values that are that absolute and universal? Decide. Chan, who was the Chinese representative to the UN Declaration of Human Rights Commission, said this. You may not believe that values are universal, but whenever yours are violated, you experience acutely their loss. The question then becomes, what do you value? What behaviors, on one hand, are very desirable, bring out really the very best in you and people around you and human spirit, and what are things that never work, that always are destructive whenever they happen? How do you want people to be? And how do you want people not to be? I want to ask you right now to think in one-word answers. And I'm going to actually ask, and I want to find out what's on your mind. What would you put, I'd like to know, what would you put in the desirable side? What behaviors? And what would you put in the undesirable side? Anybody? Yeah, Abby. Great. Attacking the person. Right. Any others? Yeah. Acceptance. Acceptance. Desirable. Undesirable rejection. Rejection, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Good. Empathy and charity. Empathy and charity. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Someone's concern. concern. Very good. Roger? Compassion. Compassion. Truth. Truth. Kindness. <laughs> Untrustworthiness. Cruelty. I didn't hear. Bullying. Bullying. Yeah, yeah. Well, knowing what we value and being really clear that we do, so much of our time is spent on the content level of what we're talking about, to address and to talk about these things that are also happening is the first step of ethical 
leadership. And to do it, you've got to be crystal clear about what you value. And value, not because it is my value, but because you believe it's universal, meaning it's going to have bad effect. You're, you, you're even doing it to help your friend because you are so convinced of that value being important that it's a self-destructive act on their part. In the workshop this afternoon, I have um, a list of desirables and undesirables and then a whole long list of values wherever they um, fit in. But to be really clear about which ones that you want to represent is step one. Next problem is how do you cultivate what you value around you? Now, I believe that also requires some advanced preparation. It requires taking your values and divide them into three distinct groups. The desirables, the undesirables, and the unacceptables. And the, the reason, the desirables are things that, you know, you, it makes you happy. It's fun. It's creative. It feels compassionate, meaningful. You know it when you're there. The undesirables are the thing that irritate you, frustrate you, agitate you. How can they be like that? It's a clash of values. Right. <laughs> and the unacceptables. The unacceptables trigger inside of you an anger, a fight-flight, a fearfulness, a hurt. If it goes on, you feel vengeful, you feel bitter. But you don't feel frustrated. You're really clear. You're angry. You're not frustrated, and you're not happy. Dividing into those three categories. Advanced clarity is important because it requires a completely different behavior to address each of those kinds. And the wrong behavior, the inappropriate behavior, actually encourages what you're trying to stop or has the reverse effect is what I should say. Spend a moment with desirables. Well, the great principle of human behavior is that whatever you pay attention to grows. Whatever you reward, whatever you plant grows. You don't, if you don't water, it doesn't happen. You pay attention, it grows. secret of a great lawn is you pay attention to feeding the grass, and then the grass crowds out the weeds. Appreciation of what you like is the most powerful tool. The principle of paying attention is so potent that it even works in reverse. If you can't get a children, if children can't get attention by being cooperative, they certainly can get a lot of passionate attention by being uncooperative, which is, comes highly rewarded and becomes repeated. Someone does something wrong in any of our environments, something that's hurtful, something that's irresponsible. And boy, the energy is there to pay attention, to blame them. I hate it when you do that. That is awful. Passionate attention instead should be reserved for the things that you like. Can you imagine? You are so compassionate. You're such an idiot. <laughs> Which of those words to that music did we hear the most? Passionate attention to what you like means when someone's encouraging, wow, you're encouraging. Compassionate, responsible, truthful, fair, fun. Somebody who pays attention to the spiritual well-being in the, in the space. Thank you. 
that was very good. That was very helpful. I love it when you do that. I appreciate it. This is the way I like life to be. Appreciation is a, has to become a habit. But I know for me, it's like, I assume life ought to be nirvana. And anytime it doesn't go well, somebody's messing with my nirvana. There's something not quite right about that. Mary Herman, the way of an illustration, Mary Herman, who is our community leader, she's by nature, by her personality, is very um, compassionate. She's a compassionate person. She's also a take responsibility person. So because of her job here, um, she gets to know what's happening in a lot of people's lives and tends to respond very generously when she finds out about it. And so on a day-by-day basis, she can hear me saying, Mary, you just can't respond to everybody. It's just not possible. It's going to wear you out. I mean, you can't feel bad because you can't do everything. You know, you shouldn't feel guilty because you haven't done enough. You know, be satisfied with what you did. You know, you have other things to do besides responding to people like that. You have to put it in some kind of balance. Now, that she hears from me regularly, right? (laughs) She didn't look happy about that, did she? What all of those statements is taking for granted is the wind of compassion that she is constantly blowing. I'm trying to manage the wind. How more appropriate for me to say, wow, thanks for your compassion. You make my life and my community so much better because you take a stand for compassion. That's what she ought to be hearing every day, right? If she has problems with exhaustion, or da, 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 let her come to me and worry about those little modifications. I should be appreciating the value that she's bringing. Acknowledging what you like, noticing it, appreciating it all the time? Yes, all the time. Catching people doing it right, even if they're a major goof-up. Picking out when they do it right, say, hey, that was good. <laughs> That's how people change. I saw you do something really nice, something that I value a lot. One way of seeing values is that values have an energy to them. You know, you may not intellectually be able to list them all, but when somebody is doing something that's really good or something really hurtful, you feel it, you know it. They have an energy, and that energy just emanates out and affects the people. It affects you. And so appreciating what you value, appreciating what you like, is what's going to make it grow stronger in that culture among those people. And uh, one more thing on this is like, uh, I'd like to spend almost all the time on this desirable side because my observation from all the relationship building classes that I do now and ever done, couples, parents, anybody, the biggest issue is not enough appreciation acknowledging for what is there. That the relationship gets filled up with, you didn't do that, you didn't do that, you didn't do that, and how come that? And so... What happens is that's how we begin to experience each other. You know, how is your kid doing? Oh, I'm I'm sorry you asked. (laughs) I don't care how many times I talk to him, what I say, I just, he just does not take care of those younger siblings. He picks on them all the time. I mean, I don't know what's wrong. I mean, what kind of a character is he? What kind of character does he have? 
Well, generally speaking, does he keep his agreements? Well, yeah. I mean, he keeps, like, comes in on time when he says yes. Uh, does he do his homework? Oh, he does very good marks. What about his chores? Oh, he does his chores. Um, is he a good babysitter? Yeah, he's a good babysitter. But he picks on the kids so terribly. So what do we have here? We have a person who's reasonably functioning rather well, but he needs some kind of training for better t- relationship with his sibs. I want to just say that that is not how issues I see people present to each other. People present to each other not as all the things you're doing right and this is something that I want to learn how to do different, train, change that habit. We tend to come on to the issues with and it doesn't work. We're paying passionate attention to the behavior we don't like and not passionate attention to all the things we do like. Let me spend a moment on the undesirables. Paying attention is so potent that even negative attention tends to encourage a behavior. So things that are irritating, agitating, and frustrating are best ignored. When you are that way, I'm not paying attention. I'm not paying attention. Ignore what irritates you. You validate it with attention. Instead, catch a person when they're doing it the way you value and say, whoa, that was good. That was very good. I found it worked great with kids who do things like, my kids used to always leave their glasses and stuff around the house. But boy, that one time they happened by mistake to bring it to the dishwasher. I was all over them about what a wonderful kid. You know, a lot of kids don't do this. You are phenomenal. You put this stuff in the dishwasher. Man, I didn't realize what mature, wonderful kids I have. They would laugh like a total jerk. And they put the dishes in the dishwasher. Know the difference between what irritates you and what agitates you and what frustrates you and what is unacceptable. Because sometimes when we have an undesirable behavior and we come at it with unacceptable energy, that's riveting that behavior. But at the same time, if we mush the two, there are behaviors that are unacceptable and we start maintaining them as, oh, this is just another irritating, agitating, frustrating moment. And we allow that value to just happen. And we don't take a stand. We don't do anything about it. And so it's really, really important to have your list of unacceptables. Practically speaking, I think having a literal list on your refrigerator of the desirables and the unacceptables is sufficient. Everything else is irritating anyway. (laughs) And you're supposed to ignore it, so why bother even naming it? But the other two you should name. Unacceptables, behaviors that are actively damaging to the culture, to an individual, to me, to the person doing it. This is where ethical agency happens. It takes three skills, I think. First, knowing your list. The, center, the, abil- the ability to center yourself. And third, the ability of appreciative inquiry. Let me go through them. You know, recognizing your unacceptables, I think there's a real bottom line that one can experience. 
Adler, Felix Adler, I think captures it in this quote. The vice that underlies all vices is that we hold one another cheaply, and worse, in our innermost souls, we think cheaply of ourselves as well. And I think you can develop that inner Geiger counter for experiencing, I don't know why, I don't know why how, but there's a diminishing going on here now. That's the watch out signal. Pay attention to values if that's happening. Unacceptable. What happens is that if we don't do that, we run into the biggest problem in unethical behavior, and that's depersonalization. When we stop seeing people from the inside as somebody who is ignorant but evolving, with a done the harm, and you don't respond to it, you get irritated by it only. What happens is at time, whoever else they are becomes overshadowed by the fact that they're the one who... And in time, because they have been depersonalized, you end up feeling justified, right, for taking a stand, for retaliating. Humiliate the humiliator. Give them a taste of their own medicine. They deserve what they get. One of Jesus' great stories and messages about ethics, a real very important transformational idea in ethics, is the turn the other cheek story. Unfortunately, most people think that it means something about allowing yourself to be a victim, not taking a stand for your values, just turn the other cheek. That's not what it meant at all. What it means was far more profound than that. He's saying that all wrongdoing is in retaliation for wrongdoing. Everybody who does something wrong thinks that they're justified. Whether it happened to me when I was a kid or yesterday or somebody else or you, I feel righteously justified in doing this thing that's upsetting. So, so that we don't become part of the problem, our natural response to unacceptables when we finally do take a stand can be part of the problem. So the first thing, second thing, know your values. Second thing is good authority. Now, what is good authority? Good authority is a state of being. We know what it means to be a state of being called, I'm being victimized. I think we've all had that feeling, I'm being victimized. That's a state of being. Another state of being is like, I'm bigger and stronger than all of you. I'm going to have my way because I got the power. And there's some relationship we've had that experience. Good authority is another way of being. The, a wonderful, uh, for me, example of that or, or illustration or metaphor comes from a, a man who is a, a great uh, martial artist. And what was most remarkable about him was that he was so small in stature, and yet people much bigger than himself he was able to easily beat. And when asked how come, he said, I know the experience of balance. However I react, I never leave balance. I can feel it so strongly that I always can stay in it. Well, good authority is something like that. It's in acting to avoid harm while always keeping your own balance. Excuse me. Acting to deal with harm while always keeping your own balance. Your own balance means that in reality, you are not the bully. You don't have the power to make people change. Nobody has the power to make anybody change. You can't bully your way to improve anybody. And you're not the victim. 
I mean, you, you weren't born in nirvana. You know, if you have a world or group, it's because you created it. And if you haven't, if it's not working, it's because you haven't, you haven't made it work. There's no victims and bullies. What there is is good authority, a person who has values and is doing their best to cultivate them. That's all there is. Very easy to slip down the side of victim or slip down the side of bully. And there's power there. You feel really energized and passionate on either side. But the place an ethical agent has to come from if they're going to make a difference is this good authority. They are not after the person. They're after the behavior. They're not going to repeat the behavior in any form, the behavior that they hate in the other person. They can't use that strategy. Step one, step is no what you value. The next step, divide it into the groups. The next step is to center yourself. Um, I find the most effective for me centering idea is to say, I count, you count. Like a mantra. I count, you count. Victim and bully, kind of like victim saying, you count, I don't. You know, I count, you don't. Oh, some of us go to, neither of us count, right? I think it's called depression. But, but the place of I count and you count is a place of good authority. You're not going to violate either of us. And if I find that literally using that mantra puts me in that state of mind. Try it if it works. Great. But the next step is, I'm in the space. You know, What do I do? The answer is appreciative inquiry. Now, there are people here who are much more expert on this whole theory of appreciative inquiry than I am, but it is a powerful tool that allows you to face a situation, address a person, without violating them. Let me give an example. My career, basically, is about going to meetings. That's what I do. Big meetings, small meetings, medium-sized meetings. Day after day, night after night, I go to meetings. Well, I've been doing that here for 30 years, okay? So I've observed a few common things, and here's, here's one of them. That during ordinary business, some people, I, get, I think they're Myers-Briggs feelers, to tell you the truth, you know? Um, they, uh, you know, feelers are the world's natural, they're more sensitive to values than anybody else. I mean, feelings and values are very connected. I mean, it's like when you see somebody beating up somebody on the platform of the subway, there's not like, let me say, is something wrong happening here? I mean, who's right? Maybe he deserves it. There's a tendency to think, like, that's not okay. So feelers, they can do that in an average old boring meeting. They really identify the values underneath. And feelers tend to be, because their feelers rather passionate about everything, <laughs> but certainly what they value. So while the rest of us are having this content conversation, they're noticing some value issues that are lurking beneath the content. And when one upsets them, now, unlike a Myers-Briggs thinker who wouldn't say a word without figuring out at least some understanding of it, even if it's dead wrong, they have to compare it to the thing. Myers-Briggs, the think, Myers-Briggs people who are feelers don't necessarily do that. They just speak up. They say, something's wrong with this group. I think the people who presented this did a lousy job because we're not getting at the deeper and more important issues. So, what's wrong? What are those deeper issues? I don't know, but I can feel it. <laughs> well, they usually get ignored, which means very often they go away. 
So the people who are paying attention to the values go away. Or the people feel bullied. They feel victimized by the person. But they don't do anything. And it builds, and it frustrates, and it agitates. And eventually, there's a confrontation. Both sides feeling humiliated, ignored, and totally justified in having a very strong position in this discussion. Appreciative inquiry is a different way of handling that moment. After moments like that, that confrontation, usually somebody quits, somebody goes away, we never have those conversations at all, so there's like a no-man's land that like these landmines in, and since they're too dangerous, we don't ever talk about that until there's so much distance between us. There's so much fear of touching a landmine, we don't even bother reaching out anymore, and so the group can dissipate. Or you, some groups like to hit back. It's just a culture where the people who like hitting stay, and the people who hate it just leave, and it becomes a bang-bang culture. That's fun. Appreciative inquiry is another way of handling that moment. And that is simply from good authority. Being noticing when someone is strongly upset by a value issue and can't understand what it is exactly. Being willing to put aside time. To let go of the task orientation. And find out. Trust that they are experiencing something. And maybe it's uniquely personal to them. Well, if you help them find that out, then they'll stop interrupting your meetings. Or they will have accurately picked up something that's happening at the meeting that can be, needs to be addressed. Put it in proportion. Put it in place as an issue to be dealt with, not an upset to drive each other crazy with. Appreciative inquiry is assuming that the other person is coming from somewhere and willingness to give them the space and the interest and the appreciation to have them talk it out, figure it out, think it out, Make space for it. Breach of inquiry. People who cause pain are in pain, or they're a sociopath. Sociopaths don't really last long in groups. So the rest of us are usually in pain when we cause pain. A tyrannical response is a tantrum. It's a childlike tantrum done by a grown-up. And you don't do that if you could handle it in some smooth, graceful, grown-up, mature, cool way. You have tantrums when you're in such pain and upset, you don't know what the hell to do. So all, we all need help expressing at some time. Sometime we all need help expressing. The need not to be punished. We don't have to punish people for their sins. We don't have to. Because sins are mistakes, and mistakes are punishments in themselves. That's not our role. Yet at the same time, we can't ignore the value that's happening here. They need some kind of attention from someone, a serious investment to find out the cause of the pain, how to make it better, how to express it in a way that isn't dangerous, damaging. How do, you get, how do we get what we need? That is a sizable undertaking for an ethical agent. To know what you value, to clearly divide them between your desirables and unacceptables, and to be prepared to respond from good authority, to deal with all that confusion and upset, in order to sort out the value, that's what's before us. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Mastering spiritual prosperity 
is not something for everybody. It's just for people who want to enjoy their life. Life is a series of moments, not milestones, not events. They are moments. And a good moment depends on the amount of wisdom and skill and value that you bring to that moment. Things are as they are. People are as they are. But our response, that is what makes the difference. Life isn't fair and it isn't kind unless you make it so. Not once and for all, but person by person, moment by moment, you know how to take discord and create harmony. That's all there is. Ethical culture is not a place you arrive at. It's a skill, a skill to be acquired, and it's a good way of being.